Well, our reading today, uh, and you'll be able to follow along, is Nehemiah verses one, uh, chapter one, verse one, through chapter two, verse eighteen. We'll we'll be omitting one portion of chapter two. You can follow along on page four seventy two. A little bit of introduction first, though. This is going to be um, a joint effort. This is going to be a team a team sermon today. Uh, we have our vitality team, most of it, is going to actually be helping me out this morning. So we have Adele is going to have a part in this sermon. Ben and Nicole are going to have a part in this sermon. And Brian is going to have a part in this sermon. In fact, it's not just one sermon. It's some scripture readings with like three micro-sermons in them. So I want you to keep me honest on the micro part of the sermon so that they don't get too long. And some of you just hold up your hands if I've talked too long. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Um, But they're going to come up and they're going to be reading the different passages of Scripture. A few of them are going to give short meditations on those parts of the Scripture. I'll give what I call micro-sermons. You could call them homilies. Um, And then we're going to have a time of consecration at the end. And one of the things we're going to do is eventually uh, this bowl here will move to the center and at the end of the sermon time we're going to ask you to come forward with your offering uh, of your treasure but also with that little green piece of paper in your bulletin Uh, and I'll explain a little bit more about that later and ask you to put it in the plate here and that will be our way of of, uh, dedicating ourselves to the next stages in our congregational vitality process of taking the pulse survey of assessing ourselves and um, sharing those results and forming some strategic planning based on what we hear from that. So it's an exciting, like Brian said, it's an exciting morning. I'm, I'm praying that God has prepared our hearts and minds to give ourselves uh, to him. So with that uh, sort of introduction to the process of this morning, just a little few words about our scripture before we begin. Uh, this is a, a journey through the first two chapters of Nehemiah. You may remember that Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He was the man who tasted the wine before the king of Persia did. The king of Persia's name was Artaxerxes. And so uh, in case anyone had slipped some poison into Artaxerxes' cup, Nehemiah would drink from it first. And if Nehemiah didn't die, then the king would drink it. So that was kind of his job. But he had a close relationship with the king. He was on speaking terms with the king. Um, And uh, just a little prehistory even of that is that we often think of these two biblical uh, people at the sort of the tail end of the history books of the Bible, Ezra first and then Nehemiah. And Ezra was the one who in the 6th century B.C. got permission from King Darius, or I mean, pardon me, King Cyrus of Persia for the Jews who had become now part of the Persian Empire after the Persians uh, conquered the Babylonian and the Assyrian empires. Um, got permission for the people of Israel, those who wanted to, and not all of them did, but those who wanted to, to go back to Israel and resettle it because they had been exiled from it. So Ezra got them to Jerusalem, and Ezra helped them rebuild the temple. That was the first thing they did is, we got back to our land, let's rebuild our place of worship, this place where God dwells. Um, But, and for many years, many decades, what was left unfinished was the walls surrounding Jerusalem and thus protecting God's temple and protecting the people were complete rubble. They were just in total ruins. And so what we hear in our passage readings from today is that um, Nehemiah, many decades after Ezra, receives a report that the walls of Jerusalem are still in disrepair 
and he has this really strong reaction to it. And he, in turn, asks Artaxerxes for permission to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls around the city. So that's, um, that's a little bit of the introduction. And what we're going to see in our, in our sort of collaborative sermon this morning is that uh, Adele is going to come up and read the first section, which is sort of this introduction to a moment of truth about the situation. Uh, uh, Nehemiah gets word about what is actually happening in Jerusalem that's not protected by its walls. And um, after that, Nicole is going to come up and reflect on um, Nehemiah's response to that, which was brokenness because the walls were still uh, unbuilt and sort of a a sense of confession that came out of that. Ben is then going to come up after Nicole and talk about how Nehemiah went on a tour of the walls at night and assessed actually what condition they were in so that he would know how to rebuild them. And then finally, uh, Brian is going to read the passage about how the people then sort of rallied around Nehemiah and dedicated themselves to the work of rebuilding the walls. So I'd like to invite uh, Adele to come on forward. And uh, she, she knows what she is going to do. First part of the scripture is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The word of the Lord. The story of Israel's rebuilding begins with Nehemiah's broken heart. The news of the sorry state of Jerusalem reached Nehemiah and he wept. What once had been glorious, prosperous, and beautiful had become a ruin and a shame to the people there. When Nehemiah heard this, his heart was torn, and he mourned for his people and his country. The story of rebuilding began with a moment of truth. Israel was desolate, wearing her shame like a garment. Great trouble and disgrace were the words used to describe her. The nation had been destroyed in battle and left to slowly decay at the hands of time and nature. This was the Veritas moment. Dreams of former glory and memories of a joyous past gave way to the stark reality that all Israel was devastated and no hope for a bright future was had. The wall is broken down. Her protection, her border, her very definition, her status was nothing more than a pile of rubble. Its gates have been burned with fire. The doorway to commerce, her most public place, her strength and defense was lying in ashes and rubble. And so Nehemiah wept. And so Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart was broken, 
The message from home brought tears to his eyes and pain to his soul. He heard the news and it tore him apart. Yet Nehemiah didn't throw his hands up in despair. Instead, he prayed. He took his sorrow, his broken heart, to the God of heaven, and there he waited. In his pain, he turned to God, and so shall we. Thank you, Adele. Nehemiah's name means Yahweh has given comfort. But this was really in contrast to what Nehemiah was feeling when he heard about the walls of Jerusalem. He was not feeling comforted at all about God. In fact, he was feeling the opposite. He was feeling, uh, he was feeling devastated by the news that Jerusalem's walls were still in ruins. So there's this reality that God wants great things for us. God wants to comfort us. God wants us to rebuild things that are broken. And with Ezra going to Jerusalem many decades before Nehemiah got this news, God had started to do that. He had rebuilt the temple, the place where God's glory would dwell. But it turns out that the job never got finished. The temple mostly got finished, but the walls around it protecting it were not finished. And maybe it was waiting for somebody like Nehemiah to come along. That job that needed to be finished had a person that God had to choose to to go and do something about it. And it seems like what really motivated Nehemiah was just hearing the news itself. When he heard the news, he sprung into action. He started to formulate a plan. He started to pray. And as we'll see in a moment, he started to confess. God wants to keep his promises to his people. But sometimes we find, and this is something we have to confess, that we can reject those very promises that God has for us and say we don't want anything to do with them. So to get to the next stage, we then need to repent of our rejection of God. And so the next section that we have, and I'd like to invite Nicole to come on up, is to read um, the section where Nehemiah both prays and confesses before the Lord. So, Confession Scripture, Nehemiah 1, 4 through 10. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes Open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. The people of Israel, I I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Thank you, Nicole. I want to say a brief word about confessing our personal sins and confessing our corporate sins, our sins of our bodies that we belong to. The first thing is that confession is just truth, isn't it? It's telling the truth about who we are, about what we've done, about ourselves. And what's great about confession is that it lives in reality. It resets everything into reality. One thing that uh, we hear a lot about here in Silicon Valley, but also just is true about the world, is that we're really good at creating what are known as reality distortion fields around ourselves. They're about, they're, they extend out from us about three or four feet, and once you enter into them, and we're at the center of them, the nexus of them, um, reality is totally goofed up and distorted. It's not what it really is. It's, it's something completely different. Um, and so in that reality distortion field, we do a lot of rationalizing. We say, well, I deserve this. Or this is okay for me, but may not be okay for you. Or another thing about reality is that something that's impossible should become possible. Or that something that really is possible seems impossible. Or that um, things aren't really as bad as they seem. Or that see, things must be far worse than they actually seem. Reality can get distorted in numerous ways. It's just who we are as human beings. I think that's part of the intrinsic nature of our fallenness is, is we, re, we distort reality. That was at the, the really first temptation between the serpent and Eve. There was a reality distortion field that enveloped her and she got sucked into it and they started creating their own. Um, and um, one thing, even the, even the scriptures talk about this. Jeremiah says to, to the people of Jerusalem, you all say, peace, peace, but there's no peace. There's no, th- this reality that you seem to be claiming that there's peace in the world, there is none. There's no peace. John the Baptist, when he had his ministry, he went down to the Jordan and he, had, uh, he was preaching the baptism of repentance or confession and the forgiveness of sins. One thing about God that I think is really fascinating is that he actually is not to be found everywhere. God is not to be found everywhere. He's not found in our fantasies. He's not to be found in our reality distortion fields. He's not in them. The thing about God is that he only exists in reality because he created reality. He created truth. He created the world as it is. He can always be reliably found in reality. But he'll never be found in fantasy because that's something that we create. One of the things that we do when we confess is we collapse that reality distortion field and we start telling the truth about who we are before God. And what's great about that is it grounds us in the true reality and it puts us in a place where God can actually reach us and where we can reach God. And the best thing about it is is it truly frees us from the prison that we've actually created for ourselves and the lies that we tell ourselves. And what I love the most about confession is that once I confess, particularly if it's to another person, I'm completely free. I have nothing left to hide. 
I have nothing left to worry about people finding out about. Now, this is kind of vulnerable and transparent, right? But that frees me up to go and do amazing things for God because I'm not worried about what's going to happen. I'd like to invite us to turn to number 904 in your, in your hymnal. Number 904. It's just a simple scriptural prayer of confession that I'd like to invite us to do together. It's actually from Jeremiah chapter 17. And ask us to come now to God in a spirit of confession, to ask God to enter into the reality that we're in as we enter his reality, the reality that we're fallen, broken people that make a mess of things that God wants us to do, and yet God wants to redeem us and give us a new chance. Number 904, way in the back. I'll read the light face uh, uh, text and invite the congregation then to respond with the bold typeface. Who can understand the human heart? There is nothing else so deceitful. It is too sick to be healed. I, the Lord, search the minds and test the hearts of people. I treat each of them according to the way they live, according to what they do. Lord, heal me, and I will be completely well. Rescue me, and I will be perfectly safe. You are the one I praise. I'd like to invite Ben to come forward now. Nehemiah 2, 11 through 16. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Nehemiah took time to assess the situation. He walked around the city, noting the destruction, the devastation, the disaster that was left behind after war and nature had their way. It was quiet work. It was solitary work. He didn't commission blue ribbon panels. He didn't hire experts. He simply walked and paid attention. The wall was torn down. Rubble was piled high. The pathways were crowded with waste. But still he wandered. Still he paid attention. This was hard work, looking at the ruins that had once been his beloved city. Many prefer to live in their memories and ignore the reality around them. Many would prefer a fantasy world in which all is still well. Many would say it's not really that bad. But Nehemiah chose the better path. He wandered the ruins, noticed all that was broken. Yet within that brokenness, he saw the building blocks of a new beginning.
Thank you, Ben. Nehemiah went on a night journey of assessment. He went around the walls to see what actually what shape they were actually in, and he did it sort of secretly so people wouldn't know what he was up to. He did it because he wanted he didn't he did it in secret because he didn't want his action of doing it to signal anything to anyone else. All he wanted to do was find out in what state the walls were in. Healthy people and healthy organizations are always open to and always invite frequent assessment of themselves and of their practices. I'm actually grateful for this myself. We have something called the Pastoral Relations Committee. And it meets, it's supposed to meet about twice a year. We haven't quite gotten to that level, but it's, it's met a few, several times, actually. This is a group inside our body where you can go to them and, in essence, complain about me if, if you want to, or also praise me. You're also welcome to do that. Uh, but both of them, I, listen to me well, I appreciate both. I really do. I want to know personally, vocationally, if I'm doing well so that I can keep going that way. I also want to know if I've made mistakes so that I can do better. There are some things in myself that I just can't see in myself. It's just, that's just the way life is. So I need a cloud of witnesses around me to help me. I need that assessment. In the same way, the church leadership of this church needs to assess from time to time, where are we going? Have we gotten there? Are we partway there? Have we gone on the wrong path? And so a good, uh, healthy organizations are always open to, to assessment, and, and fairly frequently. It shouldn't be an accident or feel like, wow, we've just really never done this before. It's been an awful long time since we've done this, but actually something that we do fairly often. One of the things we'll be asking you to do in the coming weeks is to take this survey that's going to come to your, you in an email and to really dedicate yourself to it. It may take you about half an hour. It may ask you some questions that are difficult for you to answer personally or difficult for you to answer on behalf of your church. And I know there's tremendous temptations like, uh, like Ben just read to go, well, it's not really that bad. I think we'd rather know how bad it is by getting sort of the real honest truth, the undistorted truth from everybody. That way we know where we are and what we need to rebuild and, and where we need to go. We, I think we want to be open to that. So um, that's what we're going to ask you to do today is signal your willingness to take part in, in that process. And I, I just want to say I think I know uh, just from the history of this church that I've been told that I haven't lived through is that perhaps there have been a lot of surveys in the life of this church over the decades. That may be true. Um, and perhaps... Um, and I don't know if this is true. Perhaps there's a sense maybe that some have that we couldn't quite figure out what those surveys helped us do or we can't quite figure out where we got to as a result of those, those surveys. And so uh, I want to acknowledge that that, that, that that may be a reality for some of you sitting here. I still want to ask you to participate in this survey too. I don't know about that past but I have a real hope for the future that the system that we have in place, the team that you've been seeing today, uh, the support that we have from our denominational body is all in line for God to start doing something amazing in us and through us in our community. And so I really invite you to, to do this assessment with us. Um, I'd like to invite Brian to come up for our last reading. So this actually 
sort of begins the consecration part of our service. And I ask myself, what does consecration mean? Uh, for me, it, it carried the, the, the overtones of being set apart for God. But the word, if you look at how it's built, consecration, it means being with, coming alongside, being associated with the sacred and the holy. So it's more like we're kind of lining up with God rather than he's setting us apart. And so kind of the image that came to my mind was like going to Lake Tahoe to a ski resort, stepping up on that platform and kind of getting your fanny out, getting ready for that chairlift to pick you up. And the chairlift lifts you. It takes you in a new direction to the top of the mountain. So that's kind of what consecration sort of means to Brian, at least. So here is our first reading in this part of the service. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start building. So they began this good work. Brian will be coming back uh, in just a moment. But I want to just make a note about what Brian just read, that Nehemiah said, come let us rebuild. And it's exactly like he said. It's something we do together. He didn't say, now why don't you all go rebuild the walls while I sit back and watch you? He didn't say that. He said, let us rebuild. And he helped rebuild the walls. It was something that they were in together. He maybe had vision for it because God gave him that vision. God put that in him through the Spirit that when he heard about the state of Jerusalem, he he sprung into action and he got King Artaxerxes to give him letters so that he could get the building supplies that he needed from other people and safe passage through the the countryside. So he had, Nehemiah was really, he, he was fundamental in getting this thing working, but he couldn't build the walls all by himself. Other people had to come alongside him, and it was a very much an us and a we thing, not a you thing or only a me thing. And so what we're asking is to come. Let us rebuild. Let us dedicate and consecrate ourselves to this work. The Vitality team has been in this for over a year. They're very excited. But now the Vitality team is saying to the congregation, we're in this together. And this is the stage where we really need everyone's help to do this together. And the results that we see will be for everyone to see. By the way, this survey is for everyone in the congregation to take who's 12 years old or older. So if you have a child who's 12 or 13 or so, let them take it. Uh, Put their email down on that green sheet. This is also open to you if you're not a member of the church, but you've been attending here for even just a few months. It's open to you. You have enough of a sense of what's going on here. We're interested in your feedback. And there will be a time when all of this feedback, which is anonymous, and it it doesn't go to us. It goes straight to the denominational offices, and they sort of not sure what happens to it, but they collate it somehow, and they send us a report back. That report will be for everyone to see, which is good. It's open, it's transparent, it's a good thing. So I'd like to invite Brian back up, and he's going to lead us in a meditation on consecrating ourselves to God in this work. Stand. 
Having seen the destruction, yet finding hope in God, Nehemiah challenged the people of Israel, let us rebuild the wall, and we will no longer be in disgrace. And the people responded, yes, let us start rebuilding, and they began this good work. This is indeed a good work. This is the work of God. God called the people to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and they obeyed. Nehemiah challenged the people to rebuild, and they got to work. Jesus said to his disciples, follow me, and they followed him. Today, we believe that God is calling us, Foothill, into a new future. We rejoice for his faithfulness over our 51-year history, but we recognize that there is much more work yet to be done. God isn't finished with us yet. God is calling us to be a healthy missional church. God is calling us to the work of vitality. God is calling us to follow him as he leads us into our future together. Today, we consecrate ourselves to this. We consecrate ourselves to God, to be God's people, and we are prepared for the work to which he calls us. We consecrate ourselves to God. Almighty God, we don't know the future. We don't know what lies ahead in this journey. But we are your people, and you have called us to walk with you. With your help, we will serve you faithfully. Instead of falling into hopelessness, we will trust you, and we will do our best to obey you. God, you are our God, the only God, the one who holds our future. As Israel committed themselves to following you, as your disciples dropped everything else to follow Jesus, so too we commit this to you. We follow as you lead. We consecrate ourselves to you. We consecrate ourselves to be God's people. And would you stand with me now as I read the next section? We consecrate ourselves to love one another, to treat each other with respect, to listen and believe the best in each other. We consecrate ourselves to care about those whom God truly loves. Truly all people, but especially the broken, the hurting, the poor, the outcast, and the hungry. We consecrate ourselves to the ongoing work of God, to spread the gospel everywhere, to worship him in spirit and in truth, to be a people of prayer, to study his word, to being good stewards of all that he gives us. We consecrate ourselves to the future God is preparing for us. Come what may, we will follow God on this journey. We don't know where God will lead, what enemies we will face, what trials may come, we don't know what will change and what will stay the same. As God leads, however, we will accept whatever comes as we passionately pursue future glory. We believe that God will bless the work of our hands. We trust that this place will be filled with songs of praise and that lost sheep will find their way home.
we believe God will provide all that we need. We gladly lay aside our own visions and dreams for the dreams God has for us. We consecrate ourselves to his dream for us, that his kingdom will come here in our midst, even as it is in heaven. You may be seated. So at this time, I hope you've had an opportunity to uh, look at that little green card in your bulletin. There's a place on there to indicate that you, your name, and you could, if there's only one in your family, you could write all your family's name in it. And we already have most of your email addresses, but if there's a special email address that works better for you, just put that in the box. Uh, if email isn't your preferred way of doing this, uh, or computer, put a check in the box and we'll, find, we'll get you a paper uh, survey, which then you can mail postage. We'll supply the postage and you can mail it to Chicago and they'll score it for us. So, uh, and what I'm going to ask is we're going to, this is, we're going to ask the worship team to come forward at this time and they're going to sing our final song and um, they actually have already prepared theirs, so they're going to put theirs in the plate and um, as we sing, invite you to come up on the right side of the aisle and make a loop around this plate and go back. It'll still be your right, but facing the audience, it'll be on the left to go back to your seats that way so you don't bump into each other. And not only these green sheets, but also your offering for the day, your treasure. So if you have a check or something in an envelope, drop that in the sheet too. And uh, at the end, uh, Jack will come up and he'll take this out and he'll give us all the sheets. And in the coming week, you'll get a letter from the church and an email from our denomination not too long with instructions on how to do your survey. Let me pray before we go ahead and consecrate ourselves. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, preparing our hearts for this day. And thank you for the future that you hope we will live into. In Jesus' name, amen.